You're listening to Icebreakers, the podcast exploring all things Canadian and Eurasian, business, culture, and personalities. The series is produced by Serba, the Canada-Eurasia-Russia Business Association. We're a non-profit supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. I'm your host, Nathan Hunt, one of the founders of Serba and former chairman of the National Board. I invite you to tune in regularly for valuable insights relating to the region. Hello, everybody. We're hosting today Nathan Hunt, a graduate of Yale University, summa cum laude nonetheless, former Russian director of uh, Canadian meat and dairy traders, Ronald A. Chisholm Limited. Nathan is one of the founders of Serba and has chaired its Moscow chapter for over two decades. Last but not the least, Nathan serves as host for the Icebreakers podcast. I'm Alex Schifrin, founder of LPAD, an advertising agency and a friend of Nathan's for over 25 years now. We're turning the tables on him today, making him the interviewee, and I will be doing the interrogating. Nathan, welcome to your own podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. Well, listen, I'll do my best to be uh, analog, Nathan. So I have known you for over 25 years, and, and I kind of wanted to set the context for today's conversation. I think the theme today is is reinvention. And interestingly, I've watched you and Russia our, our home for many years, uh, reinvent itself over the last two and a half decades. And I, and I think that you've had many adventures and many reinventions of your own that, that seem to, I wouldn't say parallel, but happen on or around the same time that the country finds itself in a period of reinvention. Let's do this. I'm going to mention a period in time where I think there was a reinvention taking place in Russia. And it'd be great to hear about what you were doing at that time and how you had reinvented yourself from your previous self around there. What do you think? That's a wicked approach. Let's go to it. <laughs> okay. The time is the early 90s, 91 to 93. Uh, 91, Yeltsin had, uh, had created an independent Russia. By 92, we were seeing hyperinflation of over 2,000%, uh, which I believe went well into 93. So there was, there was a formation and, and a reinvention post-hyperinflation that was happening in the early 90s. Tell us a little bit about what you were doing then and how you were transforming your life. Well, I will. And before that, though, I'll even turn the tables and tell you that I was in Russia in the 1980s. I'm not the only one. There, there are plenty of us that, that were here. And back then, it was the Soviet Union. And uh, I met a pretty little girl. She became my girlfriend, and we dated, and we ran from the KGB. We actually had... The spy stories that you maybe read about, and it seems far-fetched, that couldn't have happened in real life. Yes, it did. It happened to, to my lovely little bride and, and me. And we lived with the black market, and we lived uh, uh, in the shadows, and we got rid of a tail. One time I had a friend advise me on how to, to, to drop a KGB tail, and we did all these, these uh, kind of cloak and dagger things. Okay, not, not every day, but uh, I have some great stories from the 80s. I suppose we don't have time to go through them all. It's, it's fun to note, however that uh, the price of a cassette tape, a blank cassette tape in the West was $1 at the time, and you could sell them for 10 rubles in Russia. So you could get an exchange rate of 1 to 10 just by bringing in blank cassette tapes. I learned that early on, and uh, we lived a life of luxury in the 80s, I can tell you. So you're speculating on cassette tapes and, and Levi's jeans at the time. Yes, but Levi's jeans gave you a bad rate. Levi's jeans cost you $20 in the U.S. in the 1980s, and you could only sell them for, like, say, let's say 50 rubles in Russia. Not a very interesting rate. Professionally, what were you doing at that time in the early 90s? 
So, yes, I, I was working for a consulting firm called Summit Limited. They were consulting for food companies that wanted to, to do business in Russia. Their clients included Heinz Ketchup, Heinz Baby Food. They included uh, Land Lakes Dairy Products, Stokely, a regional vegetable packer, and a few others. One, one of their clients was the U.S. Meat Export Federation, a, a trade union of uh, companies that exported meat all over the world, primarily to Asia, but they were really interested in Russia. You know, I, I seem to recall a, a story of a chicken purchase gone afoul. Oh, dear. I completely forgot about that. And that's certainly something that should be in my biography. Yes, we always think of the Russians, you know, being nefarious and devious and deceiving their poor Western partners. Well, my very first trade deal was exactly the opposite. I had uh, a bunch of Russians that were impressed with me, government officials. They believed in me. They wanted to buy chicken. And they transferred uh, $1 million almost. It was, it was what was it? It was uh, $862,000, I think, to me to buy 1,000 tons of chicken. And I promptly took the money and transferred it to somebody whose fax number I had. We didn't have the internet back then. And uh, two lovely ladies uh, uh, that supposedly were going to ship the chicken to me. And somehow I never got the chicken. And boy, oh boy, was I red when I met with those government officials for most of the year of 1994, I remember that. I was blushing and hemming and hawing and explaining. And I finally flew to Cleveland where the sisters were based. It was two sisters. And I was astounded to find a, a fly-by-night operation, just two women working out of their basement. Not, uh, not very well-to-do, I have to say. And it became clear early on that they had taken my, my million dollars and just spent it on other stuff. You can read about it on the internet if you Google my name and uh, chicken, I think. <laughs> that was a scary time. I think when I first met you, I saw something about that ongoing case on, on Reuters. Uh, and that was my first introduction to you. Yeah, and I can say, you say, how does it all end? Well, I ended up borrowing the million dollars. And fortunately, I had a, a family that could back me up on that. Yes, I borrowed the million dollars. I paid the money back to the Russians. One of the Russian guys, and these are not gangsters, but one of the guys says, you know, you need to threaten these ladies. If it's really the ladies and not you, just tell them that you're going to take one of their little fingers and that will do the trick. They'll start shipping the chicken then. And I thought to myself, is that a veiled threat to me? <laughs> you know, I, don't, I, wasn't, I wasn't sure, but I did borrow the money. I did ship the chicken. And in the end, I, I earned it all back on, on, in the trade later. And the two ladies, uh, we went to the FBI with my lawyers. Uh, I gave them a bunch of material and I thought I'd never hear back from them. It was almost two years later, I got a call from the Cleveland FBI and said, we're going to trial. Are you ready to, 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 to testify? And I was shocked. I, I had heard nothing for two years. And without me paying any bribes, as you might have to do in some countries of the world, without me begging anybody to take action, the United States uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation simply you know, jumped on the case and put these two ladies in jail. And uh, you won't believe this, but uh, they've been in and out of jail for most of their lives. And I keep I know when they're back in jail because I keep getting checks from the U.S. government because of the judgment. When they're in jail, they earn money and I get a little bit of their salary. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> so as you transitioned out of the USMEF, what, what were you doing then? Well, how did you, you know, it's interesting that, that you are from Nebraska, you're an American. You had come to uh, Russia representing American interests, but at some point you kind of pivoted to uh, a Canadian angle. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, sure. The, the USMEF consists of many companies, uh, some of them European, some of them American, some of them Canadian companies from all over the world. The one thing they have in common is they export U.S. meat. They sell U.S. meat somewhere. And guess what? Most of those companies, they're not all producers of meat like uh, Tyson, 
or Conagra. Those are producers, but a lot of them are traders. They're offices that don't make anything. They don't have any, any factories. They don't have any farms. They buy, sell, buy, sell. And it's not five of them. It's more like uh, 105 of the members of USMEF. I don't know. That's probably too many. It's probably 55 are traders. And those traders may be based in Canada. They may be based in Denmark. They may be based in the Netherlands. And uh, I got a very generous offer from a Canadian company that wanted me to go work for them. And I was mulling about it, kind of helping them do deals for about three or four months. And it was clear that this would be a conflict of interest. I mean, I can't really represent the interests of all the, you know, the association's members and work on the side for one company. And so it, 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 I, was, I, I was in that conflict for just a couple months before I finally resigned. And I told the USMEF that I, I, I don't want to be in this conflicted position. I'm going to go work for the Canadians. This started when? When did you um, make the uh, journey? 1995, I introduced the Canadians to the, the largest account, uh, the, the company Chisholm, to the largest account uh, that they may have known in their, in their history. Maybe not, I don't know. But uh, in any case, we were all very happy with the, the uh, friendship that we put together with the Cherkizova Meat Factory. We became very close with uh, the owners of Cherkizova, the founders of Cherkizova. We helped them even in personal matters you know, helping them uh, with uh, banking matters, help, helping them with uh, university abroad, helping with immigration matters. We're close to this day, very close to this day. I won't name names on the broadcast because it's inappropriate, but we're very close to the founders this day. And I will say we were this close to taking them public. We had hired uh, uh, the best of the best uh, investment advisors, and we were about to take them public in 1998 when the first uh, severe financial crisis hit. And all of our work went uh, down the tubes. You know, the, the Cherkis of a group you might know eventually did go public in 2005, but we can't claim, uh, claim any credit for that because different people did that. And that's kind of the next big uh, reinvention that, that Russia went through is, is after the collapse of 1998, uh, we saw Boris Yeltsin step down in 1999, bring on his replacement, uh, uh, a then unknown Vladimir Putin, and, and step into what became a, a boom of the early to, to mid-2000s. Big reinvention happening in the late 90s, early 2000s. Can you talk a little bit about what you were doing uh, at that time? I can tell you we were pioneering uh, new sources of meat for the Russian Federation. You know, For instance, Australia and New Zealand, their meat is, has always been the top of the market, too expensive for a market like Russia. Well, guess what? It wasn't. We traveled to Australia. We went with some producers. We traveled to New Zealand. Somebody went, asked me once if I ever feared for my life while I was in Russia, I know what they were thinking. And the answer is I did fear for my life once, but it wasn't while I was in Russia. It was while I was in New Zealand. And the owner of the big meat factory who was with us said, I have to make that plane in Auckland. I have to be back to Auckland for my five o'clock flight. The only problem was there was a hurricane. There was a hurricane. It was Hurricane Drena, D-R-E-N-A, look it up, happening in New Zealand at that time. And we had 24 hours to get him up to his plane, and there were not any, we would, we would hire a private plane with pleasure, but no private pilots were willing to fly in a hurricane. And we found one bush pilot who was absolutely mad, and he agreed to take, take us on, and we jumped in that plane, and I have never had a rougher ride in my life. I honestly feared for my life. And the end of the story is, yes, we made it. Yes, we flew out of Auckland. But uh, I don't advise it, friends. I don't advise it. Uh, <laughs> How long was that flight? That was one hour, and it was the longest hour I have ever endured. I can tell you, it was from uh, it was from the middle of the North Island to the tip of the North Island. You know, if you know geography, Auckland is at the tip, and we were at Lake uh, what is it called Rotorua in the middle. Uh, it was a one hour flight, but it was uh, just up and down and bumpy. That the the plane, you know, 
if you weren't wearing a seatbelt, we would have had broken, broken vertebrae, believe me. So early 2000s, the, the proto-Serbo was called CBAR at that time, the, the Canadian Business Association in Russia. And uh, I, I was a member of that, and, and I recall you were one of the founders of that. Can, can you talk a little bit about the, the inception of, of this? That's interesting because I call myself a founder of Serba on the books I was one, but I was not a founder of CBAR. That association existed before me. I was simply invited to be on the board because uh, they wanted somebody in the food trade. They said, we don't have any ag or food guy. And of course, I, I mentioned the fact that I'm not really Canadian. Is that appropriate for me to be on the board? They said, yeah, yeah, you're in the you know, Canadian food trade. And we were exporting a lot of Canadian meat. Yes, Chisholm exported other meat, U.S. meat, South American meat. A European meat, we sold a lot of meat. As I told you, Australia and New Zealand, but we also sold a huge amount of Canadian meat, specifically Canadian pork. And Canadian pork was very popular in Russia right up until it was banned August 6th, 2014. Until that very day, we were selling that pork hand over fist. It constituted one-third of Canada's total exports to Russia. That's, a, that's another story. I'm, I'm already off topic. I apologize. But there was, we had a sales guy who did most of our sales. Uh, you know, I, I, we entrusted the, the trade to him and I just kind of managed things from above while he did the actual visiting of the clients and the sales. And he was a Russian and we applied for a visa and he got refused his visa. And it was just a technicality. But I remember writing the letter asking his case to be reviewed saying, here is a man that probably single-handedly uh, manages one-third of Canada's exports to Russia. Maybe we could give him a visa. End <laughs> <laughs> of the story. Yes, he got his visa. So, so that has a happy ending. And he, he, it, wasn't, it wasn't stupidity. He just was missing some form or something. I don't but know. it's also an interesting time. I, wasn't that the time when arguably Russia favored Canada? Certainly more so than today. That is exactly one of the points I wanted to make. You know, Canada has always been kind of the neutral country. The... Uh, non-America, if you will. You know, the U.S. is always the great rival, but Canada was, was kind of a third way. Certainly under Jean Chrétien, that was the case, less so with later governments. Uh, we won't name names, but in any case, Canada always got a fair shake from Russia, and the Russians were always trying to, to do little favors for Canada, almost almost only because it wasn't the U.S. You know, we would get things approved for the meat trade that the Americans couldn't get and the Europeans couldn't get. You know, and Canada's small, it's not a big deal, and Canada's not really a threat, and the Canadians play hockey with us. You know, Canada and Russia have a lot in common, and that wasn't lost on the national veterinarians. We, we would get uh, special treatment. Not always. Yes, we had problems, we had disputes, but uh, I would say on the, on the whole of things, over the last 25 years, I have to say we got better treatment than did the USA, than did the European Union. And a perfect example of that is the year 2014, when many U.S. factories were banned, the EU was shut down entirely because of a more or less political dispute, and Canadian pork was flowing into the country at prices that nobody had ever seen. That was our, our best year ever. If it hadn't been for the political dispute around Crimea, uh, Chisholm would have had a wonderful 2014. We, we had a wonderful half of 2014. Let's put it that way. Can you tell me a little bit about the, the Lada import story? Oh, yes. Well, Ronald H. Chisholm, long before I was involved with the company, we're talking 1970s here, so I would have been in grade school. They were the first company to import Lada auto automobiles from the Soviet Union to Canada. And of course, they wouldn't take them in the USA. They did take them in Canada. And they, they, they build it. Uh, Mr. Chisholm explained it to me. They, they build it as the first throwaway car. 
If it breaks, you can just throw it away and get another one because they were so cheap. You know, they were selling them for less than 2000 Canadian, I think. And of course, you can't just sell cars. You have to have service for the cars. So they did set up some service stations. They had, you know, set up a contract with somebody. The trouble is they would ask for parts. They would order parts from the Soviet Union and they would get what they didn't order. They, they say, you know, we need left front fenders. Those are the ones that tend to get busted up first. Left front fenders. They're the ones, you know, that, that hit in a collision. And they would get a bunch of right rear fenders. <laughs> they got a whole shipload of right rear fenders when they asked for left front fenders. They said, well, isn't that wonderful? You know, unfortunately, we can't snap these on because they don't fit. But uh, that all went on wonderful until the invasion by the Soviet Union of Afghanistan and then, as we recall, there were protests, anti-Soviet protests all around the world. And somebody even dropped a Lada off of a cliff, I believe, in some sort of a, a demonstration of, of anger. And that business had to be shut down. But Tim Chisholm pioneered the business. I had no idea. I did not know. I would think that if you got a shipment of, of uh, right rear fenders instead of left front fenders, the opportunity was there. It would be to ask people to drive backwards instead, no? <laughs> You're thinking out of the box, Alex. That's why I like you. I'm thinking <laughs> out of the box, Nate. Now, I'm going to throw another story out there that's way off topic, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Tim Chisholm, the guy I just told you about who, who brought the first lot of automobiles, he was also a partner with Elvis Presley in the... Uh, in, uh, what? Uh, yes, in, a, in the Memphis football franchise, the American Football League. They had the U.S. Football League, it was called. Not the NFL, but the USFL in the 1970s. And he was a partner, and he, he actually knew, and he, he met with Elvis, and they had dinner together many times. He was a friend of Elvis. And he tells many Elvis stories, but now we're so far off talking. I'm going to shut up, and we'll get back to the, get back to the topic at hand. <laughs> well, can, can you talk a little bit about the inception of, of uh, Serba? What... The idea was behind that and really how you and, and three others set that up. That's a, that's a great question because it's a great story. The fact <laughs> is nobody wanted it to start with. There were Canada-Russia business clubs in Moscow, ours. There was one in Toronto called the CRBF run by uh, Don Whalen. There was one in uh, Calgary uh, run by Paul Dreger, the CEEIA. They all had different names. We all had different member rosters. You know, some, yes, some companies were members in all three of them, but they were all kind of locally focused. So if you're in Calgary, you're going to be part of the Calgary group. If you're in Moscow, you'll be part of the Moscow group. And business, the business was starting to boom such, so strongly in the early 2000s that one of the groups, and it was the Calgary group, said, you know what? We're going to open a Moscow office. <laughs> and we didn't like that one bit. <laughs> we didn't like that at all. We said, wait, 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 wait. You have your Calgary members. You keep doing your little thing in Calgary. You know, if you need any help in Moscow, we're here. We will cooperate with you. But no, you're not going to open a damn Moscow office. We're going to do that. And of course, they, they told us, well, guess what? We can do whatever the hell we want. You know, you aren't our, our father. You aren't our parent. If we want to open a Moscow office, we'll do that. And there was a little bit of tension for about a month or two or three. And until we had a conference call, of course, we didn't have Zoom back then. Uh, we didn't even have Skype back then, but we had conference calls. And uh, we had a conference call between me as head of the Moscow group and Paul Drager as head of the Calgary group. And he said, look, we don't have to do this in a, in a, in a belligerent manner. Let's just merge. Hey, let's just merge. Your members will be our members and our, our members will be your members. And we didn't even invite Toronto at the time. Hmm. But we went half the way down the road in discussing this and the Toronto people got wind of it. And somebody called me from Toronto saying, what's this I'm hearing about a merger? <laughs> you guys aren't leaving us, us out of this thing. 
And so, okay, we decided we would include the Toronto people. And there wasn't much happening in Montreal then, but there was a nascent organization. They called the, what did they call themselves? The Quebec-Russia Business Council, QRBC or, or Business Forum or something. And Piers Cumberlege from Bombardier at the time. He was, uh, he, he, by the way, is, an, is a fabulous orator, a, a, an excellent person. I love, I love him to death. And uh, he was kind of the glue, I would say, that put us all together, that forced us to, to put our differences aside, said, gentlemen, let's be gentlemen about this. And gentlewoman, there was a very strong woman from the Calgary chapter that was uh, Eva Shafarova, fabulous lady that was really managing things from her side. And Calgary was the driver in the process. But uh, Piers was the glue, I would say, that put it all together. You know, we in Moscow uh, finally acceded. Don Whelan and his group in Toronto finally agreed. We had uh, fierce discussions over the name. Would the name include Russia? Would it not include Russia? Would Russia be at the beginning or at the end? To the point that I think people were ready to hire killers to settle this issue. <laughs> but uh, somehow we settled on the name Serba. And uh, the real kicker, the real hard part was... A month after the after the the merger, as we said, we you know we registered a new organization in Canada. There were four founders. I was one of them, and Don was one, and Piers was one, and uh, who else? Paul, Paul Dreger was one. So the four of us were the, were the official founders of this new corporation. So that's why I call myself a founder of Serba. But we had to transfer money. That was the big sticker, and all of us had tens of thousands of dollars on our bank accounts, and we all agreed that Calgary is going to be the the, the bourse. You know, they're they're going to be the the, the money strings. And so we had to close our bank accounts and ship, you know, ship, ship everything out to Calgary. And boy, that took a leap of faith. And there were people on our board at the time that said, I don't know this is a good idea. You know, this is all the money we've saved up over the last 10 years. And we're shipping out to Calgary. And I said, well, we're all in the same boat now. And I can't tell you how well it has worked out. I mean, really, if I look at, back at everything I've done in my life, Serba is by far the thing I'm most proud of. We have created a lean, mean organization we have uh, a very lean leadership structure. We don't take a lot of money. You know, if you look at people that maybe take 10% of the dues or, or 40% of the budget for salaries, you know, I don't know what our percentage is, but I know that uh, we are very lean. And we get a lot of leadership out of volunteers, and we put on good program. More than one ambassador ha has said that we punch above our weight in Russia and Eurasia. Uh, under my management, when I was national chair of the board, we expanded into Kazakhstan, we expanded into Western Canada, we opened a chapter in Vancouver, uh, and I'm just uh, proud to death of everything that, that we have done. And even, I can't take credit for it all, you know, everybody everybody has done well. Piers Cumberlege before me, Don Whelan before him, uh, Lou Namowski after me, uh, Gilles Breton now, you know, all of those uh, national chairmen have done fabulous in expanding even in very difficult times, expanding and, and shoring up the organization to the point where when people ask me, how's life going? I say, well, my business is dead, but uh, service <laughs> chugging along. Yeah, we're doing just fine. So, so Nathan, having learned nothing trading chicken in the early 90s, you thought that a prudent decision would be to send money randomly to a city in the middle of Canada. Yet this time, it was the right decision. This time it was the right decision. We ended up, nobody ended up in prison as a result, as far as I know. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and it's wonderful to see Canada talking about uh, unity in, in this example versus separation. So I think, I think you've done wonders with this. It was clearly the right thing to do in a, in a, in a, in a flyaway success. I think, I think it was a success. Thank you. Let's fast forward to 2008, 2009. Obviously, Russia went through a bit of a reinvention. 
on the heels of uh, global financial market collapse. Putin had returned for a third term. Uh, oil prices were were starting to plunge, and, and I think a lot of uh, a lot of what happened economically, uh, a lot of that growth in the early to mid two thousands was starting to slow down, and, and the country did start to look more inwardly and, and start to see, as I said, a reinvention. What what were you doing at that time in the late two thousands? Well, that's a good question. I was still focused on the meat trade, but I was starting to look at other at other side projects. So, for instance, I invested money in real estate. Uh, that was going along gangbusters, you know, really just fabulously. We were making 40% returns until 2008. You know, the Great Recession, unfortunately, had a, had a terrible impact on those investments. But uh, there, there were other side projects that we were looking at. We were, uh, I became involved in a, in a project to, uh, to buy some land and, and try and build a hotel in Montenegro. We were uh, involved in some real estate projects in downtown Moscow. People came to me because I had connections and we, we organized sale of some buildings downtown Moscow. So just uh, little things and, and side, uh, side projects. But I, I will say that uh, the meat business was always kind of my, my central focus. But I will also say that after 2008, it became much more about dispute resolution and less about selling the meat, unfortunately, because we were overexposed. There was a, a tremendous collapse in 2008. And uh, uh, we had uh, trouble recovering from that. Yeah, I can't get into the details, obviously, but it was, a, it was a challenging time. And I will also say that we were just about out of the woods in 2013. And I think we would have been just fine with our fabulous performance in 2014, as I already mentioned, uh, if it hadn't been for the political crisis, which, which really shut us down for good. But from the late 2000s to perhaps up until 2014, uh, I think there was, there was real growth in Serba happening at that time. There was expansion to Kazakhstan. Um, there were things happening in Canada, like the Olympics. There was a number of things taking place even after the, the financial cl- the crisis that, that happened globally. It felt to me, at least at that time, you became more of a voice in, in Serba in that part of your life. And I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you know, that growth period for you and for Serba. Well, that's, that's certainly true. And I've already mentioned we expanded into Vancouver. And I won't take credit for that. Piers Cumberlege deserves credit for that. He met the people uh, there that, that hired our first, uh, uh, our first regional director, Tatiana Demilovskaya, who's still with us today. She does an excellent job in Vancouver. But I will take credit for Kazakhstan because I traveled there. I traveled there a lot. I made many trips. I visited with people. Uh, I hired the first regional director, and I ended up hiring the second one after that, and I found uh, people to serve on the board, and I spent a lot of time and effort into putting together what would later be a viable organization in Kazakhstan. In the beginning, it wasn't. We had uh, some people, even a chapter chair that was telling me, you know, Nathan, I think we need to shut down in Kazakhstan. It just doesn't make sense. There's not that much Canadian business here. Uh, And I didn't. Uh, We ended up replacing him as chapter chair, of course. But uh, the, the Kazakh chapter today, even this year, I'm talking 2021, 2022, uh, has done absolutely fabulously with new members, with expanding their base, uh, expanding the, the types of products, uh, projects that they're, that they're promoting. Obviously, there's been political turmoil in Kazakhstan this year. We're recovering nicely from that, I would say. It's, it's too early to say how that will all you know, pan out. But I would say the Serba chapter in Kazakhstan is one of our strongest now. It really is. You know, we put together... I can take credit for this, the, the Canada-Kazakhstan Business Council, the, the KCBC, I, we call it the Kazakhstan-Canada Business Council, and that is a council that, that just uh, puts together leading government representatives from both countries, from Kazakhstan and, and Canada, and leading industry representatives for a, a two- or three-day conference where we get together and discuss macroeconomic issues and microeconomic issues. 
problems in the trade and successes in the trade. And it's an excellent chance to kind of get together and, and discuss, you know, where we are and where we should be going. Uh, and we do that every two years. And we're going to do it again this year in, in 2022. We've been doing it in the even numbers years. And uh, that's a fabulous initiative. So, yes, I started spending more time on Serba in the, in the 2000s, especially since Chisholm was, was less focused on selling meat and more focused on dispute resolution. And it really culminated, I would say, in that you know, we, we, uh, we have just very recently opened a chapter in Uzbekistan, and I can take partial credit for that, uh, although most of the credit belongs with our friend uh, Alexander Antonov. It was his idea. He used to be the Canadian honorary consul in uh, Uzbekistan. He was for, for, I want to say, 19 years. For a long time, he was the honorary consul there. Uh, and it was his idea to open a Serba chapter, and he has really run with that. I supported him. The ambassador at the time, John Kerr, supported him. And uh, now we have a nice uh, functioning chapter in Uzbekistan. So things are moving forward nicely. And yes, I'm, I'm proud of what we've been able to do. Yes, I started spending more time on Serba, I would say, in the 2010s. And uh, I think it, uh, it has helped the, the association. You know, the late 2000s and, and the early 2010s, that, that's sort of the birth of Hollywood hunt, as, as, as we call it. You've had some interesting brushes. Uh, I've heard stories of you meeting Larry King, Ashton Kutcher, Demi Moore. You, you, you started to become larger than life. Can, can you tell us a bit about, about those encounters? I don't know that I'm larger than life, but definitely during the pandemic, I've become larger, yes. <laughs> I will tell you, I, I met Larry King at uh, the Soho Rooms Club in Moscow, well-known. Was that due to Serba? Probably because uh, it was a Serba guy that invited me there, although I wasn't invited as a Serba rep. But uh, that made a great impression on me. Boy, I enjoyed talking to him, him and his, his lovely wife at the time. I think she was number five, and I think they're, they're divorced by now. Well, Larry King is not with us anymore. But in any case, it was a wonderful meeting. It was 2010 or 11 or 12, something like that. He was in Moscow for I don't know what reason. He was promoting something, but uh, we had a wonderful talk, and it was one-on-one, and not for an hour, but we talked for, for 15, 20 minutes about politics and about interviewing and about his style, and he inspired me then. And I'll be honest with you, when I was asked to take this on, it wasn't my idea to be an interviewer for, for this podcast, Icebreakers. I thought of that. I thought of that conversation with Larry King. I remembered him, him telling me, and he said, it, he said it many times, I never learned anything while I was talking. I try and shut up and let the interviewee do all the talking. And I remember him telling me about his styles, how he tries to, he doesn't pull any punches. In other words, if, if somebody says something that's kind of awkward or, or strange, he will call that person immediately. Like, that's funny you would say that because X, you know. And I, I've tried to make my style like Larry King's. You know, I'm certainly no Larry King, but, uh, but I, I was really inspired by that meeting. Demi Moore and Ashton Kutcher were in town. And uh, they were, this was during the, the final months of their marriage. I think it was a mere three months later that they split. But uh, I was the MC for uh, their event. They were having a fundraising event for their charity, which was to help the victims of, self, of, of sex trafficking, underage victims of sex trafficking, a very worthwhile cause. But I, I unfortunately called Ashton, I, called, I, I, I pronounced both of their names wrong, and they both called me up. I said, Demi Moore, and she says, Demi Moore. And I said, okay, sorry. And Ashton Kutcher, it's Kutcher, rhymes with butcher. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I, I don't think I made a good impression on either of them. <laughs> but uh, we did have some back and forth. Uh, I was MC for the evening, and I did uh, speak to them from the stage. And afterwards, we went out dancing. So it was a kind of a nice, uh, fun evening. Nice to say I, I met both of them. But I, I, I certainly had a warmer time with Larry King. I'll say that. <laughs> so, Nathan, in, in, a yes. good, 
in, in addition to being responsible for the divorce of Ashton Kutcher and Demi Moore, is there anything else that you're not proud of around that time? Oh, there's a great story there, actually. <laughs> in the year 2010, I'm almost certain it was 2010, it would have been close to the end of the year, Jean Charest came to town. He was, of course, the premier of Quebec at the time, and he was meeting with the province of Quebec then, and still to this day, has a very close working relationship with the city of Moscow. Not the, not the government of Russia. Of course, Quebec does things with Russia. But they have a special working relationship with specifically the municipal government of Moscow. And Jean Charest met with Yuri Lushkov, who was mayor of Moscow at the time and rumored to be a presidential candidate before, 10 years earlier. At this time, there was no discussion of him as, as president. But uh, in any case, we had a dinner for Jean Charest. And afterwards, we had a four-way discussion where Charest was standing. We were in the middle of the hall talking to Yuri Kalushkov, and there was a translator, and there was me. So there was a, a little diamond there. And Jean Charest would say something in French, and Yuri Lushkov would uh, answer in Russian, and the translator would translate everything between Russian and French. My greatest shame, everything to do with Serbia, the, the greatest, I think, uh, drawback, you know, minus that I have in my characters is that I can't speak French. I've taken it, and I can understand a hundred words, and if you give me a text, I will understand one-third of it, if you speak, I will understand one-eighth of it. It's my, my, my greatest shame of my life. And I'm still trying, you won't believe this, but I'm actually signed up to a French class this year. I'm going to try and fix it. But in any case, I didn't have to speak French because I do speak Russian. And I could understand everything the translator was saying in Russian. So I understood the whole conversation. I could nod my heads at the, at the proper time. And I wasn't really contributing at all. I was simply listening to Jean Charest converse with mayor of Moscow, Lushkov. And at one point, Charest turned to me and said something in French. And the translator was silent because Charest's talking to his own guy now. The translator didn't say anything. And there was this very uncomfortable pause. <laughs> and and uh, I think I probably remembered what Larry King said to me. And I just called it out. I said, okay, let's be honest here. The president of the Canadian Business Association in Russia doesn't speak French. I apologize, Premier Charest, but you're going to have to say that in English. And he started laughing. He was so gracious about it. He started laughing and he hit him. He hit his knee with his hand. He said, this whole time you haven't understood a word that we've been saying. And I said, no, no, I understand the Russian. <laughs> I, said, I, I said, I do understand the Russian. I have been following the conversation. I haven't been nodding blindly, you know, at, at the things you say. <laughs> And he was so gracious about that. Of course, he switched into English. No problem. I don't think he said a word of French at the, for the rest of the conversation. And afterwards, I'll never forget this. I got a thank you note from the Quebec government. It was the, their formal, their, their standard thank you note. It was a two-line thank you note, all obviously in French because it came from the Quebec government, thanking me for my, my participation while Premier Charest had been in Moscow. Charest, in his own hand, translated this two-line note into English. In his own hand, I swear to God, and he signed it Jean at the bottom. And I thought, what a classy move, you know. This guy could have been insulted. I wasn't, you know, culturally sensitive, whatever. And he just, he just made a wonderful, you know, say what you want about his politics. Maybe you like him, maybe you don't. But I think as an individual, he's a great person. So reinvention. Around 2014, 2015, arguably Russia went through another reinvention. Uh, Sochi happens. Russia was put uh, on the world stage as as very much a host and, and a hero in some ways. And, and then the incursion into Ukraine happened and sanctions took place. Russia started to turn more inward, uh, spike domestic production, look for uh, new allies. There really was a reinvention on the, the domestic and the international front. What was happening with you at that time? 
Well, I can tell you I became more involved uh, than ever, I would say, with Serba, because Serba needed involvement of dedicated individuals at that time. There was a time in 2015, we were wondering if we were going to survive. We were wondering, you know, many companies left, many companies shut down, and uh, we saw membership drop uh, in all of the chapters in that year, in 2015. I gave speeches in which, you know, we try not to be political, and because uh, we are an apolitical organization, but uh, you know, there, you know, there's some things you can't not talk about. And we simply espoused in my speeches the, the association's view that it is better to continue engagement. It is better even when there are disputes, even when there are very serious disputes. We don't want to gloss over anything. Very serious disagreements between the West and Russia. I, I think that Russia is right in some ways, but I think Russia is very, very wrong in some ways. But the point is that we need to continue engagement. Cutting off contacts, cutting off trade, Cutting off discussion, that's not the right way to go forward. The, be the best way to go forward, if you want to influence somebody, is to continue engagement. That was our theme throughout 2015. And by 2016, we saw stability. Not because of that theme, perhaps, but uh, the market. You know, we, we began to get a, a different type of Serba member. People perhaps with less star in their, stars in their eyes, but people that still saw the potential for business here. It was you, Alex, and I'll give you credit for this, that coined the expression, Russia, a lousy place to do business, a great place to make money. And uh, a lot of companies... That's funny. Yeah, you can coin that in 2011. You get credit for that, although we, we all take credit for it these days. But uh, in any case, that was the theme of our first investment conference, if you recall. I, I do, I do. So, so 2015-16, where things stabilized and, and, and there were new opportunities for Canadian companies in Eurasia. Yes, and we got a different type of, of kind of no-nonsense company. You know, we, we obviously have to be apolitical. Companies are coming to, to the market uh, just because uh, uh, there's a market here, not because they're, you know, thrilled or excited about the political situation, the political landscape. We, you know, I, I won't name names because sometimes people don't want to be named in these, but we've had major food producers come to Russia and even uh, break ground on large, uh, large production uh, facilities. We have had aircraft uh, producers come and do uh, uh, a fabulous business selling regional aircraft, even though Bombardier diverse, divested of its uh, regional aircraft business, the company that took over, Viking Air and de Havilland together, are still doing a very nice uh, business. In, and it's not just Russia, by the way. They're doing a fabulous business in uh, Uzbekistan, in Kazakhstan, and all over the region. So uh, there, there's a new type of company here. They're, they're no-nonsense companies. They know what they need. And they, they focus on that, you know. BRP is an example. I said I wouldn't name companies, but I, I assume they wouldn't mind uh, being named. You know, they're, they're selling uh, skidoos and uh, and sidoos hand over fist. They're doing a fabulous business, and they took control of it. They used to do it all through a distributor. Now they took control of it themselves, and they're doing a fabulous job. Robert Prasinski manages the operation up in St. Petersburg. I couldn't imagine a more dedicated and competent individual to run that business. He's doing a great job. So by this point, it sounds to me like you are more involved in um, almost like a government relations role. Interestingly, it's a, almost a full circle 20 years back to what you had been doing in uh, 30 years back to what you had been doing with the USMEF. You were facilitating the uh, almost like a macro business growth across different markets with some private enterprise. But to me at that point, you, you took on more of a, of a public role than, than ever before. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, perhaps, you know, I, I, I don't know what you mean. You know, I have been more public, although I'm very guarded in my comments to the press. 
know, this is a story that's worth telling. We were at a bar in 2010, I'm going to say, or maybe it was 11. And we were just talking off the cuff about how, I remember when it was, it was 2011, because we were talking about the 40th anniversary of the great Super Series, the 1972 Super Series, that would be next year, 2012. And we were talking about how to market and what activities we could do. And we could do this, and we talked about having focus groups, and we talked about having, you know, parties, obviously, and receptions. And somebody said, you know what we should do? We should get Prime Minister... Harper out on the ice with President Putin one-on-one and we all laughed and we were drinking beer. It was a bunch of hockey. We were were the hockey team and we laughed about that and we said that would be brilliant and we were taking notes and we were brainstorming, you know. It was about three weeks later that the Toronto Star on the front page ran an article saying that President Harper or Prime Minister Harper would soon be facing off on the ice with (laughs) President Putin and the, the article quoted me. (laughs) because <laughs> there had there had been a journalist in our midst you know this was just a stupid drunken idea that somebody off the cuff threw out there and suddenly it's on the front page of the toronto star i got a call from the ambassador i was in california at the time we had just returned from hawaii with the family i remember getting a call like at five in the morning from the ambassador from ambassador john sloan sloan at the time says i got a call from the prime minister's office they want to know what's going on here <laughs> i couldn't believe it i got a copy of the article I, my jaw dropped you know i called the prime minister's office. I spoke to them. I said, I told them the true story. This was just a, a drunken brainstorming session. And by God, uh, one of the guys sitting there was a journalist. I called him, by the way. I had his number and I called him. I said, are you crazy to print that? He says, hey, I'm a journalist and that's my job. I print it the way I hear it. <laughs> and I said, well, you should have mentioned that it was a drunken brainstorming session and not, you know, confirmed by the governments, <laughs> neither the government of Canada nor the government of Russia. Uh, so anyway, that's a long way of saying you got to be careful what you say around the press. You know, you talked about me as a government leader. I can tell you I'm very guarded in anything I say in a public forum. I always assume, by the way, when I'm speaking one-on-one, I assume that whatever I'm saying can be recorded, will be recorded, you know, maybe used against you in a court of law, whatever. You have to, you have to be sincere in your comments and you have to be guarded. I have spoken on behalf of Canadian business. I've never spoken on behalf of the Canadian government. You know, very recently, by the way, we had a press conference to talk about the recognition of vaccines for for tourist purposes. You know, the the, uh, Russians officially don't recognize Western vaccines and Canada and the U.S. don't recognize the Russian vaccines. So Russian tourists can't travel to Canada and uh, Western tourists, they actually can. They they found a way around it. But, uh, you know, they have problems, other problems because of non-recognition. So we had a press conference where we talked about the need to, to recognize each other's vaccines, at least for travel purposes at least for travel purposes. And I took great pain to mention at that conference that I'm not a spokesman of the Canadian government. I'm speaking on behalf of the Canadian business community. So I'm guarded, I'm careful in what I say. Yes, I think I've been a a voice of Canadian business. No, I don't think I've been a a voice of the Canadian government in the time. You know, if anything, we have simply conveyed our concerns and our wishes to the Canadian government, and we've we've gotten great support from them. I appreciate very much what... Government Affairs Canada has done for us. The the embassy has has been supportive, you know. But all, obviously, all within all to a limit because there are very serious disputes and differences between Canada's worldviews and and Russia's worldviews. You know, we don't have the same problems in Kazakhstan, by the way. We don't have the same problems in Uzbekistan. You know, more or less politically, we're on the same wavelength. But in Russia, there are serious problems, and we don't gloss them over. They exist, and we need to recognize them, and they need to be resolved. But that doesn't mean that business has to stop. 
you know, business can march forward. And in fact, the greater uh, business contacts there are between Canada and Russia, the greater the likelihood that we will find a resolution to these issues, even as they seem to be coming to a head. So business diplomacy, if you will. I would say so. Never on behalf of the, uh, of the Canadian government, however. Always on behalf of Serbia. So this is a good segue uh, as we get into 2020 and the next reinvention, not just for Russia, you know, globally, as COVID set on. A few things are happening. Putin was reelected again. There were constitutional reforms that, that pretty much ensured a continuation of the current administration for a long time to come. Uh, obviously, COVID changed everything about behavior. There was the end of the Trump administration. Vaccine politics set on, as you just made mention to. Russia started to reassert itself a little bit more internationally. Uh, and in the context of Serba, there were differing opinions and policies on what COVID is. And can you talk a little bit about what you were doing at the time, the reality of business across multiple nations that have different policies and, and whatever uh, challenges and opportunities that happened around that time? Uh, the pandemic did not help business. All business across the board was hurt by the pandemic. Uh, except maybe, uh, uh, you know, e-business, e-commerce was certainly helped by it. Delivery services were helped by it. But I will tell you that it certainly helped calm down the political disputes, the, the political tension between all countries of the world. And that includes Canada and Russia. Why? Because we found a common enemy. We found something to discuss that we all faced. In any case, COVID gave us a reason to be united. And not just COVID. I will also say COP26 you know, focus on the planet, focus on uh, greenhouse emissions, on uh, carbon credits, on carbon index, on being green, on improving the planet. If that was perhaps a side thought through most of the 20, 2000s and the 2010s, it came firmly into the forefront in 2021. And Russia has joined that bandwagon, although Russia in the beginning, they denied climate change. They said, this is, a, this is not a real thing. It's uh, just seasonal. And in the middle, Russia was saying, well, we, we, now we recognize that climate change is real. Yes, it's probably man-made, but why should Russia, why should we be concerned about that as a northern nation? That's, that's even better for us. And of course, that's not true. And now the, the position of the Russian government is very much in line with that of other Western governments. So this is truly a serious problem. The melting of the permafrost could have catastrophic consequences uh, worldwide. And Russia sent one of the largest delegations of any nation. I believe of all the attendees, they were number five. They sent 312 people, I think, to COP26. And it was another reason to, to, to find common ground. We heard the national conventions. You know, The, the British have a, a, a convention they do every year called Russia Talk where the ambassador gives a speech and uh, the Americans have an investment conference every year where the, the American ambassador gives a speech. Those have historically for the last five years been very political, very, I would say, negative. And this year, for the first year, we were hearing from everybody, hey, we have common ground. We need to fight COVID. We need to fight climate change. We need to come together and, and find ways to, to resolve these issues. And the Russians were on board. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a real tragedy that we seem to be crashing towards uh, another confrontation. As I say, who knows where this will all lead. Uh, as of February 1st, it looks uh, very ominous. But we'll see, we'll see how it all ends. Right. So, so today is February 2nd, actually. So today's date is, uh, is a funny date. Good point. Today is, today is 2-2-22. The date is 2-2-22. A fabulous date for, for us to be recording this. And once again, on 2222, we find ourselves or find Russia poised to reinvent itself, you know, possibly reinvent Europe's political geography. Who knows what will happen? You know, as we sit here on 2222, what, what do you think the future holds for you, Nathan? 
Well, I can tell you, I just spouted off for, for, for a minute or two about climate change. There's a new project that I'm very excited about. It's uh, partly Canadian, involving uh, making agricultural enterprises more green, involving uh, taking greenhouse gases away out of the farm. Manure is a serious source of greenhouse gases. Cow, how do you say this politely on the air? Cow farts. I don't know how to say that <laughs> politely, but that's another serious problem. And there are solutions that have been developed by uh, American companies with some Canadian uh, investment. Uh, so uh, I actually, there, there, there's, a, there's a project I'm very seriously interested in and I'm excited about it. I'll tell you, so, so, so that's something I may be doing. A second area that's uh, excited me is uh, the possibility of export of meat from Russia. You know, for many, many years, all we did was import. Uh, Russian meat is in demand in the Middle East, in Southeast Asia, in China. So there's great potential for export of Russian meat. They've been doing it for 10 years already, uh, and I've been trying to find a, a toehold, and I think I may have found one. So we'll see if that, uh, if that uh, is something that can play out. You know, I'm excited about the future. We'll see where everything goes. I, 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 I still have the Montenegro project. Uh, we have actually a movie project that, uh, that, uh, that might go forward. So there, there are all sorts of exciting things happening. We'll, we'll see what the future holds. Wait a minute. So t tell me about this movie project, Hollywood Hunt. Well, I don't think I'm authorized to talk about it publicly, but uh, we did write a script about an American military hero, the founder of the American Navy. I, I guess I'll go ahead and name him John Paul Jones, who has a, an astounding history. And we got the Russians to be our partners in this. The, Russian, uh, the largest Russian media company is the Gazprom Media, and they are our uh, partners with this. They're putting up half of the money, and we, we have gone to the market. And we've been hurt by the pandemic, unfortunately. Nobody likes to do big, expensive, you know, sea battles are expensive, and, and nobody likes a, a big, expensive project when the pandemic is raging. So we're kind of waiting for things to cool off. But uh, we have uh, commissioned a, a top-rate Hollywood writer, a guy with, with a name who's written many other movies and series, and he wrote a fabulous pilot, and we're, we're looking to, to take that to the market. And this is, a, this is an hour and a half discussion, but I'll, I'll get straight to the point. Why are the Russians interested? Because nobody knows that even though John Paul Jones did found the American Navy, afterwards he left and he became an admiral in the Russian Navy. He served Catherine the Great for several years. Uh, he, he was never an admiral for the Americans, by the way. He wanted that title and it was considered too bourgeoisie. They said, we won't give you the title of admiral. Uh, that's something that won't exist in our Navy. He did get the, the, that distinction from Catherine, what he wanted. Uh, and again, this is an hour and a half story, but suffice it to say, it's a, it's a great story that has uh, uh, elements for, for positive elements for both Russia and for the USA and for, our, for, for joint East-West friendship in it. Uh, you know, it's interesting you talk about film, and I'll tell you why. Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll end on this thought as, um, as the next great chapter in, in I think, reinvention and, and, and quite possibly your career. There's, a great, there's an adage which, which talks to market, market development and growth. It's, I'm a soldier so that my son can be a farmer so that his son can be a poet. And, and uh, it talks about first planting a flag, arriving somewhere, then developing an infrastructure and growing that so that then eventually you can, you can, you can pursue arts. So it sounds to me, Nathan, like, like your, your career and, and the, the reinvention around you is taking the sort of next logical step around the arts. You know, we, we were soldiers, we, we were farmers, but, but now we're going to be poets. Very, very interesting you say that, that John Adams said that, and he's one of my favorite political personalities of all times, if you've, if you've read his biography. Fabulous individual. 
But uh, yes, I, I, I would agree with that. I, I, uh, <laughs> I earned money so I can maybe do something useful for the world, and maybe this, uh, this movie project will be a cultural contribution. We'll see if it takes off. Nathan, uh, quick question. What made you a leader? I can answer that in two words. Boy Scouts. I was a scout growing up. I was an Eagle Scout. Uh, I had a fabulous scout master who inspired me, who uh, challenged me, who, who actually punished me when I didn't do well. <laughs> Uh, and he talked all the time about leadership and what it means to be a leader. And he said, uh, you know, leaders are the ones that are going to change the world. Don't be a follower, be a leader. And uh, it was very much the Boy Scouts. My brother is still a leader in the Boy Scouts uh, uh, in, in the USA. Uh, I unfortunately have not had the, the chance to get involved here in Russia, but uh, I love that organization. Of the Boy Scout badges that you've earned, which is your favorite? Environmental science. Environmental science. Although... Astronomy also. I, I liked environmental science because it was about it was about climate change. I was just interested in that at an early age. But astronomy also. I have a personal love for astronomy. Even when I was uh, ten years old, I learned all the constellations in the sky. I can tell you the names of the stars and I can find the planets. So that was uh, a matter of pride and, and excitement for me. When I went to university, I even took a, a, an astronomy course. But uh, one of those two. I don't know. <laughs> Well, listen, Nathan, it's been, it's been fascinating talking to you. I'm, I'm, I'm proud to have been your friend for 25 years, and uh, I hope to be a friend for another 25, uh, at which point I will stop being your friend uh, at 25 more. That's when we're done. <laughs> I have it in my calendar. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll put it in my calendar, too. I don't want to miss that. Thank you. It's been great, and I look forward to hearing about the new project. I'm sure it'll be uh, an exciting watch for everybody. Thanks for your time today. Yeah, thank you, Alex. You've been listening to Icebreakers, the podcast produced by Serba, a nonprofit business association supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can join our LinkedIn group to send questions to guests and find more information about the podcast series in general on our website at www.serbanet.org. Thanks for tuning in.